You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Andrew and I are delighted today to be joined by Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo, who is a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and an associate professor in the Department of Environmental Health and Engineering at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, Joint Appointments Department of Epidemiology and Division of Infectious Diseases. She's also a senior fellow for Global Health at the Council on Foreign Relations. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, I'd like to start with a personal question for you. You know, we're almost two years into this pandemic, and I think it's a good moment to ask you and every, every other expert who's working on this, like, how has this changed you personally and professionally? I mean, you're coming into this as all citizens experiencing this pandemic. You're a parent. You, what that means But also, you've graduated, it seems to me, from being a very well-known and respected expert in your field to now being a major voice in the media sphere around these matters and a person that lots of folks come to to make sense of complicated science in a highly polarized environment, an environment in which speakers of truth are oftentimes punished or singled out for special vile and statements and the like. So it's it's tricky universe, but you've sort of moved into that. Your, your place in this world has changed a little bit. Um, so tell us a little bit, start with your role as a person and a, and a parent, and then tell us a bit about the evolution. You know, Andrew does a lot on communications and he's gonna have a lot to say about this. He teaches at Tulane on communications and he's our chief communications officer. So this issue of how you've morphed is something that's kind of dear to his heart as well. Thank you. Well, thank you, first of all, for that generous description of of where you think I am. I have to say, first of all, I feel incredibly fortunate that my family is healthy, that we have had the resources to take care of ourselves, to adapt in this incredibly complicated and really heartbreaking, challenging times. Um, And I have to say that because you know, this pandemic has demonstrated quite clearly that so many people don't. And I really think that that's been at the heart of all of this is that there's been a tension in terms of the advice that we give people in terms of protecting themselves when many people just simply can't do what we're asking them to do. So I have to acknowledge my privilege on this topic before I talk about, you know, it's been the challenges, certainly. I mean, personal challenges First of all, I have young children, school-age children, too young to be vaccinated as of today. Hopefully that will change in the coming weeks. Um, And, you know, sort of watching them go through this now almost two years, you know, my, my, my youngest is five and two years of a lifetime is a tremendous amount of time. I'm happy that they're healthy and taken care of, but this has had profound impacts on them. To say a bit more about that without getting too personal, but Sure. How how does this, is it delayed learning? Is it isolation? Is it stress? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's a lot of that. I mean, my children are pretty easygoing, but my son who was school-aged throughout this, my daughter just started kindergarten this year. Um, It's been interesting to see the, the, the difference between the two of them. My daughter had been in daycare and 
you know, basically not really much had changed in her life. Um, my son, though, had a year of learning on the computer and not seeing his friends and not playing with kids spontaneously. Yeah. And he's an easygoing kid. Uh, you know, I, he didn't suffer as, I mean, academically, I have to say the last year of online learning was really generally a waste. I mean, you know, not for lack of trying on the teacher's part, but they just can't do the magic that they <laughs> that they usually do over the computer. They really right. tried, but he didn't get much out of it academically and he didn't get much out of it socially. And, you know, young kids, uh, that social element is as much of the learning as the instruction. So that, that was tough to see. Now, will he be okay? I'm sure he will be okay. He's got a lot of resources and fortune in his life, but it's just tough as a parent to see your child suffering and and then even, you know, outside of the school, the pandemic has changed how we interact with strangers and, you know, children naturally want to go up to strangers and interact with them. And there's a period of time in which even if you personally feel comfortable with your children doing that, it's not really what others want. And so that just, I, I hate to think that we're inadvertently sending messages to our children to really fear other people in ways that I think ultimately, I don't know. Anyway, it, that's been tough, but I think we're slowly getting back to you know, a normal phase. And I I look forward to the spontaneity of their childhood being fully restored. Andrew? Yeah. Thank you, Stephen. Jennifer, thanks for being with us. I I feel for you. I have teenagers, three teenage sons, so it's different than what you're experiencing, but really have a lot of empathy towards what you're seeing. You know, unfortunately, our kids... You know, even though they have, they do have great resources. You know, this is all this has affected them. It's it's you know slowed their social growth in some cases, like you said, their academic growth. And you know, I think that's something that we're all they're going to have to reckon with as you know they try to catch up, and we're going to have to reckon with as well. I wanted to ask you, you know, Steve mentioned before that this year is really this last two years have really tested your communication skills, and you found yourself thrust into a big social media marketplace that's complicated and also carries political risks, you know, especially when you're dealing with the issue that you're dealing with, which is COVID and it's been so polarized. I want to ask you about your experience with this. What have you learned and what do you see going forward? I mean, the WHO calls the pandemic an infodemic and and not for nothing. I mean, it really is. So what do you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think all of us have had to step into this sphere, this public sphere, and in, in speaking on these issues in part, I think, because the powers that usually are the authoritative voices have been absent. And I think that's had strengths and weaknesses. I mean, I do think that an engaged public is incredibly important, but I really wish there had been more coordination of the expert views so that we could kind of hash through tough issues in a more organized and less chaotic way. But everybody I think has has stepped in and I and I'm I'm really glad that people have really rolled up their sleeves and tried to help in in the what really has felt like a power vacuum. And I've viewed the the public communication as being one of the most important tools we have to combat this pandemic, you know, to equip people with the knowledge that they need to help themselves. And and people are just like searching for information. I mean, there's just so much confusion there. They're looking for someone to give them advice what to do. And if you're someone with some level of knowledge, I think there's an obligation to do that. I also think that public communication has been an important policy tool. And I do think that working through media and working with media and and speaking publicly on social media moves the needle, not as fast as we needed it to move, 
probably not in all the directions we needed to move, but it, it has felt important from a making change perspective. So that is why I've, I've felt it's important and why I've given it priority. But it's been tough. I mean, it is incredibly polarized. And I don't think there's anybody I know who's been vocal that hasn't been the subject of attacks. And that you would include yourself. Yes. Um, I had, well, I mean, there's been a lot, but probably, you know, without giving too much attention to the, <laughs> to the sources of it, you know, cable news hosts who are notably known for these sorts of things when they've gone after me personally, you know, my, my inbox is filled up with, with dangerous emails and, and threats and security has, has had to become involved. And I'm not alone. I mean, I, I'm sharing that not to like gain sympathy, but just to say that this is really common and particularly among women. Peter Hotez has had a similar thing. Uh, I'm sure, you know, so many of, you know, experts out there and, and physicians and, you know, really key people to this have had the polarization that's come along with it really blow back on them personally and their families. Tony Fauci probably at the top of the list. So Jennifer, what do you think has been, have been the most powerful triggers drawing attack? Like, is it a matter of a particular issue set or the way in which you've stood up for the facts as against some, what, what were the trigger moments as you look back over the last two years? I think the worst was around the time of the Black Lives Matters protests and, you know, the, in, the inevitable clash of how you control a pandemic while also respecting constitutional rights. I mean, I, you know, this is, this is an area where I think there's robust debate. Um, I tend to fall in the line of, you know, we should be very, very wary about ceding constitutional rights, even in a time of crisis. And freedom of expression is an important one. And that's for regardless of the issue. I mean, there are people who are protesting, you know, closures and other things. And I think what you try to do is you make try to make those as safe as possible. But it's really hard just to tamp down. We've seen leaders in other countries use the pandemic as an opportunity to centralize power and, and minimize dissent. So it, it is a really slippery slope, but it's also an area where I think there's fair debate among, you know, what should our response be? Um, you know, I, I fell in a line with uh, the right to protest as an important one worth preserving, but, you know, so for me that, that probably elicited the most complaints, but you know, anytime, anytime I talk about vaccines, for instance, that, that seems to elicit a lot of it and it's, it's related, right? It's about, <laughs> You know, I think one of the reasons why the vaccine issue has gotten the legs, you know, that the political forces have been able to exploit vaccines is because it really treads on people's fears about their autonomy. And it's unfortunate because they've done a real disservice in terms of, you know, convincing people that not to avail themselves of, of life-saving tools. Do you, do you think that the views within schools of public health, like the Bloomberg School, about communications and what's what's required to be effective as communicators has changed profoundly. I mean, the, I think it's a fair criticism of the field and I don't mean this of you, but I think of the field of public health is they don't train people very well to be communicators to a broad public. They train people to communicate to their peers in papers and conferences and guidance and things of that kind. But this is a big, big demand and a very sensitive one. And I would expect there's we're going to see some soul searching and some deep changes 
in the way that we educate the next generation of public health officials and, and experts. Would you agree? I think that's true. I mean, I, I think scientists and experts aren't really taught to, me, to communicate, but I think that, is, that has changed. I will say I feel very happy that Johns Hopkins University prioritized very early and, and was very supportive of, of faculty being visible, being out there, um, supported us even, you know, when the threats were piling in, provided us the resources to assure our safety, et cetera, because they saw that that was an important role for the university. Um, I think they also very much see the value of communicating through the media in a way that I'm not sure all schools do. Did they step up their investment in your training? Yeah, there are training opportunities. Did, did folks get more media training? Yeah, I think there are there are media training. I'm not sure that I availed myself of them. Maybe I should have, <laughs> but there are opportunities. I actually, when I was, I did a DRPH program. That was actually one of our courses was communicating with the media, and we had you know camera tests and things like that, which was was useful. One place where I really wish the field had better training. And it's not just about like how to be a good spokesperson. It's about what message should you be sending? And it comes to vaccines. I mean, I feel like I've done a tremendous amount of communication with people who are not yet convinced of vaccines. And most of these conversations are just, I'm winging it. I'm really winging it. And I'm winging it based on what I think I've read in the literature, but also just body language and like what the person seems to be worried about and making sure that, you know, you give space to hear those worries and then then address those specific things. But this is should be a whole discipline of research and we need more tools and we need to better understand what the right messages are and what the wrong ones are and what pitfalls, you know what I mean? So that's a, that's a place where I really want to see the field invest more resources. Jennifer, I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I've been talking a lot with Steve and others about how not just the expert community, but the government needs to be able to better communicate. And really, on this issue, on this set of issues, there's no way of looking at this that you can't say there's been confusion. There has been confusion on a variety of things. And even the most highly educated, plugged-in people are constantly feeling, you know, latest issue is, is, should I get the booster or not? If, should I get, should I mix and match boosters? Should I, when should I get it? And, and these are, these are the kind of things that, you know, it does, I think what you're saying require not just, you know, media training, it requires messaging. It requires overall, I mean, I think there needs to be courses taught in this at the, both at the collegiate level and graduate level, but also to, to people in government who really need to be able to be completely transparent with the public. I mean, the first thing, Steve and I interviewed John Barry. John Barry, of course, the author of the great book on the Spanish flu. We asked John, you know, what's the most important thing that the government can do? And we asked him this early on. He said it was be honest and transparent and forthright with the public. And, you know, I think over two administrations now, we're seeing communication hasn't been ideal. No. And, you know, I, I think about this in the broader context of people trying to live their lives in the midst of all of this who don't spend 40, 60, 80 hours a week reading and trying to understand. And, you know, I understand why people are not yet convinced about vaccines in particular. I mean, it's, it's incredibly confusing. And honestly, people's ability to even seek out the right information is severely limited. I mean, they are trying to do research in an information ecosystem that is just swimming with disinformation. 
And so it's incredibly hard for people to find the right information. And I don't feel like government has really tackled this issue in the way that it has needed to. I will tell you, I do so many of these conversations and, you know, if you spend time with people and if you really unpack their arguments, you can make progress. I mean, you can get people to a different place, but it takes t- it one by one, but it takes time. But I can't even point people to a resource to say, here, here is where you can go for more information. Because, you know, I, I will tell you, I have found wrong information about the vaccines on government websites, not intentional, just like too summer, like too, too simplified to the point of being inaccurate um, in a way that, it, you know, has consequences. So we really need to fix this problem because people don't even know where to go for the right information. And I don't think government agencies have really put themselves out to support an information environment that allows people to find truth. Especially when you have people talking across different agencies. You know, you have so many different agencies involved in this, and they're not necessarily all on the same page at the same time. People feel like it, that, that's an unraveling. Now, I think a lot of it can be explained. You know, there aren't necessarily consensus in science. You know, that's the, the process is messy. I think our regulatory environment is not equipped for a fast-moving event like this. But there also isn't a center of gravity to convene around and distill and sort through the disagreements for people. And that I think is what's been missing. You know, it's, it's unfolding on Twitter as opposed to some authoritative body who weighs the pros and the cons and the debates and then issues, you know, a, a single point assessment. I would add to that, Jennifer, that some of the key institutions that had high trust in the past, it was always very fragile, right? And CDC and FDA have both taken really enormous hits. They've made unforced errors. They've been divided internally. They've been traumatized. Uh, They've been subject of political abuse and trust, popular trust has sort of eroded so that you're trying to communicate against a backdrop of erosion of confidence in the institution itself. And then you layer on top of that groups that are deliberately exploiting that for their own personal profit and foreign adversaries who are taking advantage of it to seed, um, you know, chaos. And we just don't have a plan to combat it. Let's turn to the question of like, where are we in this pandemic? I mean, it's a mixed picture there. I think there are good reasons to be optimistic right now, as we look at what's happening here in the United States and what may lie ahead as we head into the spring of 2022. I mean, boosters are arriving. Children are going to begin to be vaccinated. Coverage and immunity is rising. Antivirals are going to come on stream. On the other hand, we could see a dangerous variant appear, and many people are predicting that. And the politicization is proceeding apace. Even as our coverage rates are getting higher and higher, the hardening of politicization so that we seem to be kind of two separate countries that don't talk to one another or believe in the other side. And as you've said, misinformation, anti-science sentiment is pervasive in this kind of polluted environment. So how do you how do you sort through and describe where you think we are at this moment? So I'm cautiously optimistic for the U.S. Um, I think we are, you know, 
obviously it's nice to see as I'm speaking, um, sustained case declines. I think that will continue for a while. It'll probably pick back up. We'll probably see a rise in cases after the holidays, but I'm hopeful that the combination of vaccination plus natural immunity will mean not nearly as large of a surge of cases like we saw last year. I think for the U.S. right now, the worst is probably behind us. But I say that, and I have to like a special note to if you're listening to this and you're thinking, I'm not yet vaccinated and I'm just going to run out the clock. This virus is not going away. I mean, we will all be exposed to it, vaccinated or not. And in my view, the vaccines are an incredible tool to make that contact as harmless as possible. But that is, you know, I think something that we have to contend with. This virus is not going away. It's going to be there. And so, you know, no one's going to run the clock out on the virus. Vaccines aren't a force field around your body. There will be exposures and vaccines are what train your immune system to respond quickly and to limit the damage. So just to say that. Now, the picture globally is much more bleak and, and the bleakness is really one of, of lack of access to the life-saving tools that we are benefiting from here in the United States. You know, I think we are seeing countries are increasingly abandoning efforts to control the virus largely by public health measures because the Delta variant with a shortened incubation period makes it really hard to to stay ahead of it. Yep. So really, the story that's ultimately going to be told is one that's determined by access to vaccines. And, you know, there obviously is deep worries about the potential for a new variant to emerge that could, one, undermine the progress we've made with our vaccinations. Now, whether that will happen, I think there's some scientific debate about that. But if our ultimate goal is to end this acute phase of the pandemic where we can get back to normal, we can start traveling, we can engage in business, where our supply chains aren't interrupted, all of the like many cascading ways our life have been disrupted over the last two years. If our goal is to end that, which I think that's our top line goal, that's not going to happen unless we improve global access to vaccines. Well, Jennifer, in this country, we're coming up on 800,000 deaths due to COVID. It's a staggering number. Do you think Americans are becoming numb, though, to this reality? I do. I mean, how do you even comprehend that number? I mean, my career was completely shaped, and my, my personal life was completely shaped by the events of September 11th, you know, where losing 3,000 Americans in a single day was a horrific tragedy that we could never imagine experiencing again. And yet to just absorb hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, of lives lost in this country, you know, is, uh, it's just unfathomable to me, really. It touches every household. But I think that there are certain challenges that we face as human beings that are so great and the tolls are so enormous that our psychological response is to, is to protect ourselves by minimizing it. And I think that's sort of what's happened because it's, it's so impossible to wrap your head around that number. Do you think that there's a constituency forming de facto out of those that are the survivors, those who suffered the loss, those who've had to live on, who saw the futility or the incompetence or the inadequacy of the response? Do you think there's a constituency forming? I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe. I hope so. I think there's a constituency forming among um, people who are experiencing recurring symptoms of their infection. And I think that's been helpful in terms of advocating for research and care. And I think that that has absolutely shaped the conversation about even how we approach COVID. But, you know, 
part of, I think, the challenge is that, you know, age has been the single biggest predictor of, of risk of death. And I do think that there has been a devaluing of, of some of the lives that we've lost. And, you know, people in nursing homes, I mean, nursing homes still attribute, you know, or contribute, you know, half or a third of the deaths in the U.S. And that's a tragedy, but I think we've absorbed, just accepted that somehow in a strange, in a, in a strange way. I mean, if I have any, like, neither of my parents are alive anymore and that's never a good thing except that I haven't had to worry about them in, in this context. My mother before she passed away was, was in a nursing home and, and I can only imagine like how terrifying it would have been to have her be there and go through this. You know, on that note, Colin Powell's passing, I do think touched this country as with the profound sadness surrounding his passing that here was a person of enormous stature and a beloved person who was dealing with Parkinson's and dealing with cancer and chemotherapy and was fully vaccinated and died, still died unnecessarily in the midst of all of this. So, you know, we've had personalities, similar personalities during the HIV pandemic, Rock Hudson and Elizabeth Taylor becoming galvanized. The other thing I wanted to mention is, you know, during the, when Suzanne Furstenberg put those 700,000 flags out on the mall, the remember, in America, remember, and she'll be joining us in a couple of weeks for a podcast, second podcast. We did one when she did her earlier installation. But when in talking to her, I asked her, how is this different? And I was bicycling to and from work every day and making a point to go down and observe what was happening there over the course of those two weeks that that was up. She said, this time around, the expressions of sorrow and pain are so much more fulsome and visible and overwhelming. She's, that was how she described it. She was overwhelmed and, and not able to even begin to process what was happening this level of grief and mourning that had been postponed in some fashion. And you could see this in going by there, the dozens of people who came there and sat on those benches and wrote little testimonials on the flags to the people. You could see this steady flow of people going through there. It was kind of like, it reminded me of going to the 9-11 Memorial in Manhattan and realizing that the profundity of the response to people. When I first went there, I went with people who lived across the water in Brooklyn Heights and witnessed what everything that had happened. They couldn't take it. They couldn't revisit. And you saw these kind of things. So that's partly why I'm asking, but partly, you know, the 9-11 commission itself was able to carry forward on the basis of, there was a constituency there demanding some action that made sense of what had happened and came up with a credible narrative of what had happened. This is not a one day event. This is a global pandemic that's still with us. So it's a profoundly different challenge, but that constituency could be really important in the future, it seems to me. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I wonder how different it might be. This is a virus and 
you know, the way we sort of react to natural threats versus an act of terror, if we sort of normalize, I mean, just, just seeing people's orientation and, and views about the vaccines, you know, that they are worried about the risks of the vaccines, but not the risks of the virus. And, you know, to some extent, when you talk to people and you really sort of tease out why they, this, this disconnect, some of it is that by getting vaccinated, you know, it's like, it's an active step. You're like signing up, (laughs) but if you get infected, it's an act of God. And, you know, we maybe accept some level of, you know, well, it was the fates when, the virus uh, befalls us versus, you know, willingly to take steps to protect ourselves. I hope that's not the case. I mean, I hope we come out of this with some reckoning and and vow, you know, never again, like we said in 2001. Let's talk a little bit more about the commission, because Steve, this has been something you're involved in. And, you know, clearly the 9-11 commission had a profound impact. Is there a need for a national commission on the pandemic as well? I do think there's a need for a national reckoning and a national investigation of what happened and what didn't happen, in part because we need to fix the problems. You know, we have the kind of reporting, the public reporting of, you know, political interference and, you know, a stockpile that existed on paper, but not actually with supplies as we all expected it to. Like, we have some of the public reporting on this, but we really need to go deeper. I mean, we really need to figure out what went wrong in a way that I think requires a true opening of the books, if as it were. And, you know, I think the 9-11 Commission was able to do that. They were really able to to go deep and figure out where the pathologies were. Sometimes they were organizational pathologies. Sometimes they were, you know, a failure of imagination, you know, all of the various things. But we don't have that. We just have sort of the media accounting um, and the political, you know, explanations, but not a, a deep dive. So I think that's really what we need. We need the emails and the interviews and it needs to go deep and have, you know, maybe not, I mean, I, I think subpoena power is probably necessary, you know, to be able to make sure that we get to, to the truth in part, because I think there are some deep, deep problems that need to be fixed that are just not seeing the light of day. Well, what are your thoughts about the outcomes or some of the outcomes of the September 22nd summit and what are the next steps? Have we entered a new phase of high-level diplomacy? No. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Uh, I think that there have been a lot of pledges and not a lot of action. And it's, you know, I was very, very heartened to to hear the pledges, you know, a few months ago from, you know, was it the G7 uh, billions of you know doses being thrown around, but when you look at what's actually been delivered, it's it's a it's a very small and embarrassing fraction. And you know we're having you know the head of the WHO saying that the, you know calling moral failings on on the response, and you know I I personally agree with him on that. But you know it is it is not a good situation to be in. And, and like I said, I I don't think it's in our pragmatic best interest to not be making more progress on this front. On that, can I ask you a bit about your thoughts on U.S. strategy? And what I'm, my point here is that the U.S. is attempting to stretch itself and become more engaged internationally and globally. But there's, there continues to be a very strong drag on what's happening domestically, right? That leads to hesitation and 
a dominance of the domestic response that that and, and the international steps have we've done more than other any other country but it's very fragmented it's somewhat ad hoc there's no clear structure that is in charge authoritatively and it's ambiguous as to what's the strategy and what are the goals what's the budget what's the long-term aim you say a bit about that i know you've given it a lot of thought I think that's, frankly, our single biggest failing. I mean, both domestically and globally, we don't have a COVID control strategy. We don't really know what we're aiming towards. We here in the U.S., I mean, I can't define for you. People often ask me, when is this over? And I honestly can't tell you. Not because, obviously, that's a hard question just to, you know, give, I'm not a crystal ball, I can't give a date, but even to define what the conditions are that constitutes over. I can tell you what I think the conditions should be. I think this virus is not going away. And what we're doing with vaccines is we are defanging the virus and making it not capable of putting people in the hospital or killing them. And that to me is our fundamental goal. You know, and that factors into the booster debate. Do we give people third doses? I think there's very compelling reasons why if you're immunocompromised or if you're over the age of 65, you would benefit from an extra dose to make sure you don't wind up in the hospital. But other than that, I'm not sure what we're trying to do. We, I think we're trying to reduce transmission for the next six months, but then what? But, you know, again, I, this is just me. I mean, I think we just need a strategy and we need to say this is what we're doing. We need to understand how pediatric vaccines fit, fit into that, how masking fits into that. When is it appropriate not only to, to use those tools, but when is it appropriate to stop using them? And there's a lot of debate. But is it too late? I don't think it's ever too late for a strategy, right? I mean, yeah. and I think at this point, people are really hungry for it. And part of why I think people are, why it's not too late is that people, the lack of it is causing people to disengage. You know, I think I know a lot of other parents who don't love the fact that their kids wear masks. And, you know, I'm not one of them. I'm perfectly fine. But I also don't want my children to wear masks forever. But some of those parents, part of their deep opposition to it is that they think it will, quote, never end. And I don't think that's true. But we also haven't told them specifically why that's not true. You know, similarly, I think there are some people who are reflecting on the fact that, wow, you know, we've done incredible things with controlling influenza and controlling RSV by all of our measures. And, you know, maybe we should, you know, re repeat some of this in future years. I'm not opposed to that, but I have to tell you, that's, that's an argument that's not landing with a lot of people. So I just think that we need to have a strategy. What are we trying to do? What are, what are our goals? And, and, you know, stay laser focused on that so that we know when we've reached success. And then globally, we need that too, because we have some countries, they're increasingly few, um, that have, you know, pursued a zero tolerance for COVID cases. They're increasingly abandoning that strategy, but there are some. And, you know, if that's your goal, how you'll use vaccines is different. And then we have other countries that have been completely left unprotected nearly fully unprotected. We have healthcare workers dying in extraordinary numbers, which will have generational impacts of a gutting of already weak health systems. That does not make the world a safer place. That does not make the U.S. a safer place. Well, we have the erosion and, and exhaustion of our own healthcare provider human base. I mean, you go to any urban ICU unit or emergency room, it's, it's staffed by traveling Tra travelers, people who are on the circuit and the local supply has been cut by half. It's, it's kind of astonishing how fragile everything is here, even with the best of, uh, of endowments. We want to close with the question we ask 
all of our guests, which is as you look out onto the future, what gives you the greatest hope and optimism? So, you know, I think as polarized as we've become and as politicized as this event has been, um, it feels like it can feel like there's an unraveling. And I think if you read the headlines, that's where you think we are. But if you talk to people, and I think one of the best parts of this pandemic has been that I've been able to connect with people that I would have had no other opportunity to connect with. It's not really that way. I mean, people are just largely trying to do the same thing. They're trying to protect themselves. They're trying to protect their family. Maybe they disagree on the tools or the way to do that, but they ultimately want to do the same thing. I've been so heartened by the number of people who are just reaching out and trying to get involved and trying to do the right thing, even if what they think is the right thing isn't necessarily what I want to. That It's just like there's this civic spirit that I think is there that we need to take full advantage of and recognize that people are are being willing, trying to be willing participants. They just need a way to plug in. And at the beginning, I talked about how I was worried about my children. And, you know, I still am a mom, so I'm always going to be worried about my kids. But I do have to say, if there's any upside, I think that this year has really shown them, you know, about, about thinking about other people in, in a way that maybe is, you know, that we didn't have as many clear opportunities to talk about prior to the pandemic. So I do think there is a possible possibility for us to come out of this stronger, more connected, more engaged public. We just need to kind of channel it into productive ways. And, you know, prior to the pandemic, nobody knew what an epidemiologist was. And I never have to explain it to anybody anymore what an epidemiologist is. And I think that level of, of engagement and knowledge that we now have um, is an important one that we could do a lot with. It just will take, I think, leaders who see that as, as a real asset to use rather than to abuse. Thank you. That's very eloquent and very powerful. Thank you so much, Jennifer, take, for taking time today to be with us. And thank you for all you do on your day-to-day 16-hour days in trying to make the world a little better in the midst of this crisis. So we're really grateful to you. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to have this conversation and to you both for hosting these conversations and for continuing to do all that you do to keep these issues moving forward. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Jennifer. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Pulver. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts.